me in the Bibles to Mark chapter 9, looking at not, chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So, hope that video gave you a little glimpse of what we enjoyed this week at BBS. Again, thanks for everyone being involved. Uh, thanks to uh, the Talkas for letting us use their lawn for recreation. Uh, that was a blessing. And uh, everyone participated in a lot of different ways. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, let me read our passage for us, and then we'll jump in together. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and when they came, so they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, who have just been up the mountain and seen the, uh, Jesus' glory. So when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Have you ever been disappointed by the failures of the church. Maybe you've gone to a church looking for help, hoping for spiritual guidance, or and you walked away, they didn't want to help you or they couldn't help you. Or maybe you've been part of a church, maybe even in the leadership of a church, and you've felt at times, man, it just feels like we're weak. It feels like we're failing to do what we should be doing. That's the situation we see at the beginning and the end of this passage. At the beginning of this passage, we see a man who came to Jesus' disciples asking for help. He was in great need. His son had been seriously afflicted for many years. He was at his wit's end, and Jesus' disciples couldn't help him, not even a little bit. And you can almost hear the disappointment in his words. Teacher, I brought my son to you. I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, and they weren't able just couldn't help. 
You know, there are many people in our society who grew up in the church or participated in the church for a while and would still say, I believe in God. And many people would even say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm done with church. Because I've been disappointed. I've been hurt too many times. And I don't think the church can help. Sometimes people have been involved in a church for many years, and then the church gradually drifts away from teaching what the Bible teaches, or other people have been part of churches where the teaching was good, but people weren't living out the Bible's teachings consistently, and other people have found themselves like this man in great need and looking to the church for some kind of spiritual help or spiritual guidance, but the church couldn't seem to deliver. Of course, it's not just people outside the church who struggle with feelings of disappointment, Many of you have shared with me your own experiences of feeling disappointed or hurt by other followers of Jesus. For some of you, this might be a tender wound, sort of like an injury that you haven't completely recovered from. You know, when we're recovering from an injury, we tend to move around cautiously. We tend to react more strongly to certain stimuli than we normally would. We tend to be more sensitive. Maybe that's how you feel toward the church. You're sort of sticking your toe in the water, testing it out, but you're not quite ready to dive in all the way. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. And I understand the process sometimes takes time. But you know, this story isn't just about a man who looked to the church for help and was disappointed. It's also about Jesus' disciples, the future leaders of the church who were disappointed by their own failure and weakness. In verse 28, they come to Jesus and say, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast it out? They had good intentions. They wanted to help this man, uh, their, but their best efforts hadn't produced any good result, and they didn't understand why. Even though a few chapters before, Jesus had said to them, I'm giving you authority to cast out demons instead, they cast out some demons. So they had been able to do this kind of thing before, but here, their efforts fell flat. I think sometimes followers of Jesus can feel powerless and defeated in the face of opposition and difficulty. In fact, I think many Christians in America feel that way, at least some of the time. Powerless and defeated in the face of opposition and difficulty. So if you felt disappointment, hurt, failure, weakness, this story has a message for you, for us. So I want to look at three themes in this story. Number one, Jesus' followers sometimes fall short, verses 14 to 19. Number, uh, number two, Jesus is worth trusting anyway, verses 19 to 27. And number three, concluding lessons for Jesus' followers. Number one, Jesus' followers sometimes fall short. Now, to put this passage in context, last week we saw Jesus took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the top of a high mountain, and they saw his glory. It was an amazing experience. It was a powerful experience. It was a wonderful experience. And then they come back down to the valley, and immediately they're confronted with chaos and confusion. People running here, running back, a flurry of activity. There's overwhelming crowds surrounding the other nine disciples. There's critical scribes. They were religious scholars who were sort of picking fights with Jesus and his disciples periodically. And then the crowd sees Jesus, and they're much more interested in Jesus than in Jesus' other nine disciples. So they run over to Jesus. They're excited to see him. 
And then Jesus asked the scribes in verse 16, what are you arguing about? He must be asking the scribes because they're the ones who are arguing. Uh, but the scribes don't answer Jesus' question. Instead, someone from the crowd speaks up, right? So you see this whole sort of chaotic uh, and confused scene with all these people milling around. But now in verse 17, we find out what's the real problem here. And we hear the voice of a distraught and desperate parent. His son hasn't been able to speak, was regularly afflicted by seizures. So he had resolved to bring his son to Jesus. But of course, Jesus was up on the mountain, so he went to Jesus' disciples, who were his authorized representatives. Jesus' disciples, again, they've helped people in this situation before, but here they can't. They have failed. Verse 19 says, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, who is Jesus speaking to in this verse? The father has just explained his son's condition to Jesus, but then it says, it doesn't say Jesus answered him. It says Jesus answered them. So Jesus can't only be speaking to the father. He's speaking to a broader group of people. So who would it be? Was Jesus talking to the scribes who were sort of pouncing on Jesus' disciples at the first sign of their weakness? Possibly, but the scribes aren't mentioned in the rest of the story, so that doesn't seem, it's unlikely verse 19 is addressed only to the scribes. Or was Jesus speaking to the crowd again? Possibly, but the crowd responds more positively to Jesus than, uh, uh, responds positively to Jesus in this story. So it's unlikely Jesus was rebuking the crowd only, or was Jesus saying his own disciples were faithless? difficult to be with and difficult to bear with. That's the one that probably makes the most sense if we have to choose. Now, I think it's probably some of all of the above. Jesus looks around and he sees a fickle crowd. He sees critical scribes. He sees defeated disciples and a disappointed father. And he laments, O oh, faithless generation, Similar words were spoken by Moses after he had led the children of Israel through the desert for 40 years. In the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses described the people of Israel as a crooked and twisted generation. And Jesus looked around and saw the same thing, people who were naturally disloyal and distrusting and hard-hearted, including Jesus' own followers. You see, Jesus sometimes, it's not, see, Jesus' followers sometimes fall short just like they did here. Now, some of you might think, well, you're a pastor, and you work for the church. You must think pretty highly of the church. And in one sense, I do. Because Jesus made some amazing promises to the church, to his followers, to his people who gather together. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And the Apostle Paul wrote, Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and to present the church to himself in splendor. So Jesus is utterly committed to his people, to the church. At the same time, the closer you get to the center of any organization or any community, the more you see not only its strengths, 
and positive aspects, but also its weaknesses and its failures. Have I been hurt and disappointed by the church? Yes. It hurts a lot more than being attacked by the outside world. Some of you have told you are not. You know what I mean. Jesus' followers sometimes fall short. That's the first thing we see. But the second thing we see is that Jesus is worth trusting anyway. Verses 19 to 27. This father had been disappointed and hurt by Jesus' disciples who failed to help him. But thankfully, he didn't just encounter Jesus' disciples, he also encountered Jesus himself. Now, when people have been disappointed by the failures of Jesus' followers, it's not always easy to approach Jesus with confidence and faith. And we see, right here, Mark shows us, very vividly, the struggle for faith in this man's heart. Look at the Father's words, verse 17 and 18. He doesn't approach Jesus with confidence and trust. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus, I know that you care for me, and I know you, can, you have the power to do whatever you want to do. He doesn't say any of that. He just gives the facts and the failure of the disciples. I brought my son to you. I brought him to your disciples, and they were not able. They couldn't help. And then when Jesus said, bring him to me, Notice verse 20. Verse 20 says, it doesn't say, and the father brought the boy to him. It says, and they brought the boy to him. In other words, the father got some help, either from the crowd or from Jesus' other disciples. You see, sometimes people who have been disappointed and hurt don't actively approach Jesus all by themselves and bring all their problems and concerns directly to him with confidence that he can help, sometimes they need help and encouragement from those around them. Maybe you've experienced that. It can be a way that God meets us in our disappointment and hurt, someone else coming along and sort of helping us bring our feelings, our concerns, our needs, our hopes to Jesus when we might be reluctant to do so all by ourselves. Then, verse 20, the boy is brought to Jesus, and things seem to get worse instead of better. Another destructive episode ensues, which, if you think about how the father's feeling, might have disheartened and discouraged the father even more. Bring the boy to, the disciples can't help, bring the boy to Jesus, and it seems to get worse. But notice what Jesus does next in verses 21 to 24. Jesus doesn't immediately cast out the demons. In verse 25, Mark will show us how Jesus cast out the demons. But first, Mark wants to show us how Jesus led a disappointed and distraught man to reach out to him in faith. Now, the same story appears in Matthew and Luke, but it's much shorter, and it just focuses on Jesus' power to cast out the demon. Mark shows us, very vividly, Jesus concern and care for this father. So let's look at verses 21 to 24. Verse 21, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? A compassionate question from an understanding friend. Often that's one of the first things that people who have been hurt and disappointed need. 
not immediately an earful of advice, but a patient listening ear. There's a point in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan, the lion, appears to a weary traveler in the middle of the night. And the traveler is confused and doesn't even know what's quite what's going on, but he says, tell me your sorrows. And the traveler starts to open up. And that's what this man does here. In response to Jesus' question, how long has this been going on? He starts to open up from childhood. And he gives more detail that we haven't heard so far. Verse 22, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. son has had a long-standing condition that has caused much misery and, danger, and serious danger. And then he says in verse 22, verse 22 is the first time that he even comes close to asking Jesus to do anything. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I think by this point in the conversation, he's convinced that Jesus cares. At the beginning, it's not even clear that he believes Jesus cares. But after Jesus asks him this question and listens to him as he opens up, he says, have compassion on us and help us. I think you have some compassion. But he says, if you can. He doesn't believe that Jesus can yet. He's not certainly not confident that Jesus can. And so in verse 23, Jesus challenges the man directly. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. I mean, isn't Jesus so fascinating here? At first, he just asks a question and patiently listens as the man tells him his sorrows, but then he challenges the man. If you can, don't you believe by now that I can? You see, there's a time to just ask questions and listen and say, tell me your sorrows, tell me your story. And there's a time to challenge, like Jesus does here. Do you believe that Jesus help you. And verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. It's both a profession of faith and a plea for faith at the same time. He's acknowledging there's part of me that doesn't believe and that is full of doubt and disappointment and, I, and isn't ready to say yes and wants to say if you can. But I do believe. I do believe you can. You can. And help me because there's still a part of me that is struggling to trust and struggling to trust you. James Edwards, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Mark, wrote this on this passage. True faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses enough faith from within himself, but when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. And so even when Jesus' followers have failed and this man has been disappointed, Jesus is able to lead a disappointed and distraught man to become a true believer in him. Isn't that amazing? And once this man expresses faith in Jesus, Jesus responds to his simple but heartfelt prayer by casting out the demon from his son. Verse 25 says, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, commanded it to leave and never come back. Then verse 26, just as in verse 20, 
things seem to get worse before they get better. The demon does come out, but only after crying out, throwing the boy into violent spasms and leaving him unconscious on the ground. Verse 26 says he was like a corpse, which means he wasn't actually dead, but he seemed to be dead to most people because he was unconscious and comatose until Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. You see, Jesus' followers sometimes fall short, but Jesus is worth trusting anyway. Can you say that with confidence? If you have been disappointed and hurt by the failures of Jesus' followers, by the failures of the church, it's not going to be enough to just go find a different and better church. That might be what you need to do at times. There are reasons to do that at times. But in order to really find healing for your disappointment, you need to encounter Jesus himself. You need to go to him like this man did and tell him your sorrows and struggle to trust him and say, Lord, I believe and help the part of me that doesn't believe. Jesus is able and willing to help us even when his followers can't or won't. Again, James Edwards wrote, Jesus is competent to satisfy whatever longings remain unsatisfied by the church. The church will not always fulfill our longings and hopes Jesus' followers will still fall short in many ways, but Jesus is worth trusting anyway. Amen. You know, we don't gather together to sing praises to the church. We don't gather together just because the church is so wonderful. And if a church is so wonderful, it's because Jesus is in the midst of us. Amen. We gather to sing praises to him. He's the one who we worship and adore. Gather together because of something far greater than ourselves. So should you give up on the church if you've been disappointed and hurt? Now obviously I'm speaking to those of you who have walked in the door this morning. But some of you might have gone through a period in your time where you did. And all of us know people who aren't here today for this very reason. Should you give up on the church if you've been disappointed and hurt? Should you just go for a walk in the woods every Sunday morning or find a group of friends and go out to brunch together or sit on the front porch with the Sunday newspaper and a crossword puzzle and say, that's my kind of church for now? No. Not because the church is perfect, but because Jesus hasn't give up, given up on us. And he's promised that he'll be present where even two or three are gathered together in his name to listen to his word and to do what he wants us to do. If you've been disappointed by the church's failure and weakness, go to Jesus like this man did. Let him lead you like he did this man to reach out to him in faith. <coughs> so Jesus' followers sometimes fall short, but Jesus is worth trusting anyway. But finally, the passage ends with some lessons for Jesus' followers who had fallen short. The story ends with a private conversation in verses 28 to 29 between Jesus and his disciples inside the house. Why couldn't we do it? They asked, and Jesus' answer is, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So for those of us who are Jesus' followers, what are we supposed to learn from this? Uh, so let me talk about first some lessons from this story about dealing with demons in particular, because this is an account of casting out a demon, and second, some lessons from the story about dealing with challenges in general. For, so lessons for Jesus' followers. 
Lessons about dealing with demons in particular. Demons are real, right? They're evil spirits, and they do torment and afflict people. However, we should be careful to distinguish demonic affliction from other medical conditions. Now, most of the symptoms that Mark describes here, many people have noticed, they correspond to the symptoms of epilepsy, right? Or what we would call a seizure disorder. So, falling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, grinding at the teeth, uh, stiffness, those are all commonly recognized symptoms of epilepsy, a neurological, which can be a neurological disorder. Now, Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, describing the same incident, uses a word that is sometimes translated epileptic. Uh, now, of course, there's not an exact correspondence between ancient medical terminology, much less precise, uh, and modern sort of understandings of the brain, but Matthew could be acknowledging a medical dimension to the boy's condition. However, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the boy's condition as a demonic affliction and not just a medical condition. And uh, one thing that we see in verse 22 is, a not, is not a normal symptom of epilepsy. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Okay, people with a neurological seizure disorder are not normally attracted to fire and water. That's not part of a normal neurological disorder. And I think that's one reason why all the gospel writers agree that this child was afflicted, not just with a medical condition, but with a demonic affliction, an evil spirit that was seeking to torment and ultimately destroy him. So we might ask, how would we know if someone is being afflicted by a demon or an evil spirit today? Well, there are three incidents in Mark where Jesus personally encounters someone who is acting out of a demon that is afflicting or tormenting uh, or, or ruling them. And in every one of those instances, one's a man in, a sy in the synagogue who stands up and starts yelling at Jesus in the middle of Jesus' sermon. One is the man in the graveyard who is crying out and cutting himself with stones, and then when Jesus shows up, he gets even crazier. And third is this boy. All of them respond violently to the presence of Jesus in particular. So they start acting out in sort of a violent way, yelling at Jesus, screaming at Jesus, right here, um, falling on the ground. And it's not just a random occurrence, it's because Jesus comes on the scene, or Jesus starts talking to the person. So if someone responds violently to the name of Jesus or the presence of Jesus, that might be an indication that they are not just suffering from a physical or psychological illness, but actually being afflicted or tormented by an evil spirit. You see, demon possession is not the same thing as mental illness. On several occasions, I've gone to visit people in the psych ward, and some people have been very confused, very distressed, and very troubled, but if I have read the Bible to them or prayed with them in Jesus' name, they were very receptive. They were comforted, and they were encouraged. They responded positively to Jesus. You see, their brain was malfunctioning, certainly. Their perception of reality was off, but they still loved and trusted Jesus. Okay, so demon possession is not the same thing as mental illness. So we should be careful to distinguish these things so we can help people appropriately. 
Uh, if you look at how Jesus deals with people in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters people with physical illnesses, he often lays hands on them and blessed them. He touched them to show his care and concern for them. And we read earlier from the book of James. The book of James encourages us to do the same. It says, if someone in the church is seriously ill, let them call for the elders of the church and ask them to come and lay hands on them and pray for them. As your pastor, if you are suffering from a, a serious illness or a prolonged illness, and you ask, I will gladly come and pray for you. Some of the deacons would be happy to come with me. We can pray with you exactly like James says we should. Lay hands on you, pray for you, pray for God's blessing and healing to be upon you. But when Jesus encounters people who are violently acting out because an evil spirit is afflicting them, he doesn't go and touch them and bless them. No, he rebukes the evil spirit. And commands it to leave, as Jesus does here in verse 25. And Jesus told his disciples to do the same thing. Jesus gave authority to Christian believers to cast out evil spirits in his name. That means not in our own power, but calling on Jesus' power. Not in our own authority, but calling on Jesus' authority, because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, one last thing about demons. Demons do not always manifest themselves in such violent and aggressive ways. So the Apostle Paul, in his letters, uh, reminds us that demons can tempt people to believe lies or to become obsessed with a sinful desire, whether it's greed or something else, or uh, to fall into the trap of pride. Paul calls pride at one point the devil's trap. And when Paul talks about, okay, how do we fight against those temptations or deceptions, Basically, what he says is we should fill ourselves with the truth of God's word. We should trust Jesus. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you trust in Jesus, we should be aware of Satan's devices and temptations, but we don't need to live in fear of demons or evil spirits. Some people live in fear of demons or evil spirits because they're confused, and they think that one, something's going to pounce on them, right? Like a child is afraid of a monster. At night, right? And that's not how Jesus wants us to live as believers in him. So he's the light of the world. He's stronger than any evil spirit. And so if we trust in him and walk with him, then uh, we should be aware, but we don't need to be afraid. Okay, so that's some lessons about dealing with demons. If you have more questions about that, I'm happy to talk with you after that. I know that's a um, topic different people have different experiences with uh, or questions about. Um, but... There's also some lessons, not just about demons, but dealing with challenges in general. Okay, and I think the main lesson is, whatever challenges or opportunities come our way, we must turn to our Lord in prayer and trust. You see, Jesus' disciples had properly diagnosed the problem. They realized the boy had the demon. They had tried to respond by casting it out. So the problem wasn't that they, you know, misdiagnosed somebody and, and so were doing the wrong thing. No, Jesus says... The failure was due to their lack of prayer. Now, before I go on, I need to briefly address a question that some of you might have if you're reading a different translation of the Bible. Because if you're reading the King James Version or some other translations, verse 29 says, This kind can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. 
So you might say, why are the translations different? Some just say prayer, some say prayer and fasting. The reason they're different is because some of the early copies of the New Testament, some just say prayer, and some say prayer and fasting. And so you might say, well, okay, but do we have any other clues to indicate what did Mark originally write or what did Jesus originally say? And I do think we have one important clue. Earlier in Mark, Mark 2, 19 and 20, Jesus told his disciples that they didn't need to fast while Jesus was personally and physically present with them on earth. He said after uh, Jesus was gone, then yes, they would, they would fast. Okay? As a, as a spiritual practice goes along with prayer. So it doesn't, I think, it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense if Jesus has already told his disciples, as long as I'm here with you in the flesh, you don't need to fast, it wouldn't make sense for him to then say, well, you couldn't drive out this demon because you weren't fasting. So, for that reason, um, I think that verse 29 is not about fasting, it's about prayer. Now, there are plenty of other verses, examples in the Bible that encourage Christians that fasting can go along with prayer. It's, it's a good uh, uh, practice spiritual practice in the Christian life, but I don't think that's what verse 29 is about for that reason. Okay, so again, what's the lesson we're supposed to learn? How did Jesus' disciples fail to pray? Some ideas. Were the disciples trying to show off? Maybe they thought, we've cast out demons before, now Jesus isn't here with us, and these scribes are mocking us, we'll show them that we can do this. Well, that wouldn't be attitude that pleases Jesus, or perhaps they were trusting their technique instead of trusting in God's power. Some Jews in Jesus' time taught that demons could be cast out by reciting certain psalms or Bible verses. So, were the disciples thinking, oh, well, we did it before by quoting this verse, we'll quote this verse again. That's the trick. It's this technique, rather than continually relying on Jesus. Maybe. Or were they relying too much on their past success? I think this is probably the most likely thing. They had succeeded in the past, and success sometimes breeds carelessness and complacency. Uh, my pastor in college, who mentored me for several years, had previously worked as an assistant pastor under a famous pastor over in England. And this famous pastor led a large church for many years, wrote many books, and people loved his sermons. They thought he was so smart, so intelligent. He was sort of well-known. And then, well, my pastor was an assistant pastor in that church. That head pastor ended up abandoning his marriage, leaving, abandoning his children, and it was a huge scandal. It was a mess. He left, resigned his position. But here's the thing. A couple of years before the pastor abandoned his marriage and his children, he had abandoned his practice of prayer. He kept on studying, he kept on preaching, he kept on writing books, but he said his personal devotional time became his sermon preparation time. I think my, past, I think my pastor, when he was the assistant pastor, heard him make a careless comment. Oh yeah, I, do, I study during my quiet time. How, you know, that's how I get insights for my next sermon. That's, that's, what, I, that's what it became. It became nothing more than that. You 
see, there's always a danger for Jesus' disciples to become successful and then become careless, complacent, or arrogant. Instead of trusting and relying on Jesus every step of the way. You see, sometimes weakness and failure is a mercy from God because it humbles us and brings us back to a place of depending on Jesus, and it saves us from a worse fall later on. You see, Jesus' disciples could learn an important lesson from their weakness and failure here. Perhaps that was better than them not learning their lesson then and then having a worse thing that happened later on. Now, in the end, this passage doesn't show us precisely how Jesus' disciples failed to pray. I've given you some, some possibilities, right? How their attitude could have gone off track. But it does show us one example of a prayer that Jesus answered. Right? Some people think, well, you know, is this saying this kind doesn't come out of right anything from prayer? Does that mean I need to pray for hours and hours on end, for years and years, and then maybe I'll get to the point where I have enough power to cast out a demon? Well... There's one prayer in this passage that we've looked at that led to Jesus casting out the demon. What prayer was that? Verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. Not a long prayer. Not a complicated prayer. That man wasn't even a mature believer. He was barely expressing a mustard seed of faith. You see, Jesus isn't saying, Jesus says, Come to me like this man did, honestly, sincerely, humbly, and unpretentiously. Come to me just like this father did in our weakness, in our failure, in our disappointment, in our hurt, in our inadequacy, and crying out, Lord, I do trust you. Help me with the part of me that doesn't want to trust you. And Jesus says, that's enough faith. And that's a prayer that I can work with. It might be as small as a mustard seed, but I can work with faith the size of a mustard seed to cast out a demon or move a mountain or do more than you can ask or imagine. Jesus' followers fall short, but Jesus is worth trusting anyway. So let's look to him with trust and dependence and prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for how you came alongside this distraught and disappointed father and gently and firmly and graciously led him to reach out to you in faith we pray that you would i pray that you would help each one of us lord to reach out to you from our even from our place of disappointment or hurt or doubt or weakness and trust that you hear us when we cry out to you like that man did pray that you would sustain and strengthen our faith. We pray that you would deepen it and don't let it fail. We pray that in everything we do that you would get the glory as a great giver. In Jesus' name we pray.